Coming up next, the bookening reads Romeo and Juliet. Good morning, good evening, and in case I don't see you again, good night. <laughs> Just watched that movie recently. Oh, really? Yeah. I have not seen that movie since it was in the theater. It holds up. Does it? Yeah, it's good. Is it still a searing indictment of our television-obsessed culture or whatever? Sure, yeah, whatever we're still as television-obsessed as we've ever been. Social media, it's an indictment of that, too. Okay. Watching everybody's lives through Instagram. Does it actually feel more prophetic now? No. No, okay. <laughs> it feels like... A prophecy that no one listened to. That was one of those movies that was like thoughtful and prescient, m- meaningful and prescient, and yet really mainstream. Like everybody went and saw it, and everybody thought that it was thoughtful and meaning and prescient, which sort of makes you think it must not have been quite as meaningful and prescient. Like, yeah, yeah. I never did. Yeah, you never thought it was meaningful or prescient. I never saw it. Oh, you never saw it? No. I think one of the big everybody reasons was. was I, I think it was because of. You were doing a Nathan, a reverse. I think I was. Like a, I think yeah. it's like everybody sees this, is seeing this, and thinks it's like super profound. So it's it, probably it's good. I'm gonna and stay away. It, it is good. It's, it was Jim Carrey's first dramatic role, so I think that's what really drew people into it. Yes, yes, yes. We were talking, of course, about me, myself, and Irene. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the Dumb and Dumber. Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> Dumb and Dumberer too. Yeah. The movie really moves me. Yeah. No, it is uh, tears it is, every time I watch it. Moves me out of the theater. Oh. <laughs> So satisfied after yeah. I've laughed for 90 minutes. You know what did not move people out of the theater? What's that? Romeo and Juliet. No, they stayed right there. Yeah. <laughs> they were so devastated. They sat in their seats. And cried. And cried, cried, cried. I think it's a comedy. Yeah. You guys, are we going to have like takes on Romeo and Juliet? I've got a take no. on it. Is, is, are I you got gonna, a take. Actually, it's a something. It's not just Actually, like, it's a space opera. Yeah, it's actually like a space opera. <laughs> That's a good take. That's my take. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Good stuff. Well, listen, folks, we are talking, in case you can't tell, which maybe you can't, we're talking about Romeo and Juliet. The show is The Bookening. Mm-hmm. The host is Nathan Aaron Alberson. Yep. The first, there will not be a second, because I'm not naming any of my, I guess you could name your children Nathan Aaron Alberson the second. Is that allowed? You could. You, you could, yeah, you could do that if you wanted to. It'd be weird, but yeah. Yeah. It'd be I, very strange. I don't suggest it. Even if you love me, there's better ways to prove it. Face tattoos, mm-hmm. really just face tattoos. Tattoos of Nathan's face. Right. Fa- tattoos of Nathan's face on your face. <laughs> I'll just wear your face. Yeah. Hannibal Lecter style. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> well, I wish we were doing our Stephen King episode because that would tie in rather nicely. I'm going to talk about somebody who wore faces in that episode, but we're not. We're, nope. talk- we're talking about Romeo and Jewel Eet. Juliet, as she's known. <laughs> Old Juliet. Rocky Tio. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. It's a play by William Shakespeare. The, the one pod- only. True. The podcast is uh, The Bookening. Yep. I am Nathan. Also true. Host Nathan Aaron Alberson. No one else holds that title, but Brandon holds the title of the contextual Texan. I do. The ABD, PhD. Yep. M- one, two, three. You and me. You and me. <laughs> Girl. Mm-hmm. And he's also the introducer of the third man. He is the one and only. Mm-hmm. The Jacob. <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> Mansoul. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> you, you need that effect, Oh, man. sorry. That's what the board's for. So you don't have to... Whoa. 
Jacob Kyle Menzel. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a real audience that we have here. Oh, let me turn off this megaphone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is coming. Hey, hey everybody. Yeah. Yep. yep. It's, uh, anyhow, that was an introduction of me, and I'm here. The, Jake is here. Brandon's here. I'm, I'm here. He's the pastor who's a master of reading. Yes, he is. You're the scholar who's a baller of books. What's that sound? It's the contextual Texan. It folk. sure is. We, Brandon is from Texas. He's going to provide some much-needed context on Romeo and Juliet, the premiere play by old Billy S. Yeah. I am excited to talk about this one, actually. I have to say... I enjoy Romeo and Juliet. I think maybe I've been hankering for some lesser Shakespeare, tired of tackling all this Lear and Macbeth. And mm. Lear's my favorite. Yeah, it's good. It's good. But this one's fun to talk about. Yeah. This very one's fun to teach to students. So what? So it's very big of you to acknowledge that Lear's good. Lear's good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. You're, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? Except you're welcome. Da, 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 da. The tattoos are the, dancing the across your arms. The modern now. version of, of Shakespeare. Shakespeare today. Yeah. Moana? Yeah, Moana. Yeah, the Moana. character of Moana <laughs> is the modern it's Shakespeare. It's the closest thing oh, that we you, have to you compare mean, to. Uh, that, yeah, what's yeah. his face? Lin-Manuel Miranda. Miranda. <laughs> the Shakespeare of today. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, I think today sucks, but yeah. he is the Shakespeare of <laughs> it. Sure, he's sure why not? Yeah, he's, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, who do you else, who else would be? A candidate. I mean, you uh, could try to make a case that Cormac McCarthy is, but he lacks the populism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It would have to be another director. Who's that cross-dresser? Uh, Harry Styles. Oh, no. Is he no, the Shakespeare of today? No. No. It would have to be someone who creates and also acts. I think that Lin-Manuel Miranda is the best option He's we the got. closest analog we have yeah. to popular genius on that kind of... Yeah. Like, yes. Sings his poems in front of the president which would be like shakespeare in front of the queen yeah so yeah the king's players mm-hmm. <clears throat> the elizabethan manuel <clears throat> miranda is actually how we should start referring to i think true. that it's actually probably pretty true because as we've talked about many times with our shakespeare context the shakespeare we think of is not probably who shakespeare actually was in our particular world we have the <clears throat> classical and a cold version of Shakespeare, that he's like this high art form Shakespeare. and He's a he's, bust. Yeah. On and a shelf. The way he got there was because, I mean, even like in the 17, 1600s, 1700s, he wasn't really known as like the, the great bard. He eventually had to be championed by the romantic poets and then some other people. And then finally he became known as the Shakespeare we have today. But that Shakespeare was kind of created out of this desire to have this academic, cold, high art Shakespeare. And that's definitely not who he was. And He's that's a not real even, man of genius. <clears throat> yeah, that's not even how his... Real man of genius. Real man. I wish I don't know the reference was. It's know. a beer commercial. Oh. oh. Well, there we go. <laughs> Bud. Wise. Er. Mm. That's great. We did it. <laughs> we did it. Wise. <laughs> well, guys, good night. That's the show. We grew up in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's up? I'm not even going to give it energy. I was going to give it energy, but you guys did. Robot voice says we must get back on track. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, that just Thanks. ruined the mood. <laughs> <laughs> that 
really did bring down the mood. <laughs> We're like, oh no. Thanks for the buzzkill. Yeah. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yes. Nothing like <laughs> the high art that we imagined in the day. Right. Like the high art that you guys just experienced. The immortal with. <laughs> yeah. bard of Stratford upon Avon. Let's yeah. talk, talk about him. Well, <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, yes, I've also got a monster voice. <laughs> what? <a> monster voice. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and I've got a large robot voice. Which sounds like this. Well, hey, guys. Well, let's. Let's talk about it. <laughs> 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 well, that immortal bard. Stratford <laughs> An all-powerful queen! <laughs> <laughs> Look upon her! And despair! That was wonderful. <laughs> that was, I didn't even know that that effect existed on the board until just now. <laughs> Uh, I thought you were trying to get us on the rails, man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we are on the rails. We are. Uh, we're on them. What rails burst through yonder window? Oh, yeah. Uh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare. We've <laughs> talked about this guy how many years now? Oh, is this number seven or is this, this number, number seven? six? I'm, I have no idea. We always forget. Well, we were talking. Well, how, many, how many Austin novels are there? We just redid Pride, Pride and, and Prejudice. Prejudice. So if we can... Count the Austin novels. I always get confused about that. I think there's just six. It's yeah. Sense, Pride, Emma, Mansfield, Northanger, Northanger, Northanger and Persuasion. Persuasion. So since oh, you did that one, yeah. So we are actually in the midst of year seven. This is the seventh right. time we've talked. Year of Jubilee. Things. Yes, this is. We are finally free. <laughs> <laughs> we're free, as people can tell. Free at yeah. last. Yeah, free, free at last. <laughs> so we were talking beforehand about. Do in this context. Can I just say very quickly, whoever, whichever one of you made the connection to do Kate Blanchett when I turned on that, that was me. That was very <laughs> smart. And, that was funny and fun. Uh, a dark, <laughs> dark queen. <laughs> it really does kind of sound like. That, unfortunately, no. all right. Uh, anyway, Shakespeare. We are talking talking about a. We are tarking. kind of tarking. We're tarking <laughs> Tarkington. <laughs> we are Booth Tarkington. Booth Tarkington. Yeah. Fran Fran Tarkington. Fran Tarkington. So many great Tarkingtons. There's the. Not Grand Tarkington, Moff, but is it Talkington? Grand the Moff lawyer from Blue House. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's Tarkle, Tarkahorn, or Turkle, Turkle, Burkle, Turkey, Turkey, <laughs> Turkey Baster, <laughs> Turkey Baster. Yeah, a famous lawyer from Bleak House. Uh, uh, it is Tarkinghorn <laughs> or something. I Tolkien, think. Yeah. Tolkinghorn. Tolkinghorn. Yeah. yeah. And we're talking about J.R.R. Tolkien. No, we're not. We're not talking about. I really thought I was bridging us back to reality there. <laughs> we're not talking about J.R.R. Tolkien. No. J.R.R. Tolkinghorn. <laughs> no. But J.R.R. Tolkinghorn liked. The guy we're talking about, but who doesn't? Yeah, who yeah, doesn't? Shakespeare. That's who we're talking about. Yeah. Shakespeare. That's a good question, actually. Who doesn't? <clears throat> Nabokov, maybe? Probably. There's like famous people that don't. Oh, but, Tolstoy didn't Tolstoy, like Tolstoy, that's that's who I was trying yeah, to think of. Tolstoy yeah. did not like Shakespeare. Yeah. But he wasn't writing in Tolstoy's language, so. Yeah. And Tolstoy wasn't very good either. Right. So. <laughs> Hot take. Hot take. <laughs> so th- one of the reasons I'm excited to talk about this play is because it's a great play to teach to students. They mm-hmm. get excited about Shakespeare. So in that vein, we've done this seven times now, guys, and we pretty much do the same context every time. So let's do a little bit of quiz. Okay. Sound good? Yeah. 
When was Shakespeare born? 1993. Yes. Good job. No, he's, still, <laughs> he's still alive. Still got it. <laughs> we got to be very careful not to invert any numbers in saying this oh, casually. Get or else we'll get a one star yeah. review. <laughs> yes, we did. Let's see if we can actually do 1537. this. 1537. No. 15. No, it's 14 something. Is it? No, no, no. It's the fi- He's the right century. Okay. 15. 17. Mm-mm. Is it 15? Is there a seven in it? No, you got to keep going this way. Is it a teen number? No. 1507. No, he's closer to the 1600s. You guys are getting... 1580 something. Nope, too far. 1570 something. Too far. Too low. 58. Too low. 59. Too low. 60. Too low. 61. Low. (laughs) 70. No, too high. (laughs) 65. 63. Still too high. Oh, oh, 64. 64. Jake got it. Jake got it. What I win. What I win. High five. Yay! Yeah, we've obviously not paid any attention to Brandon's <laughs> six contact. What month? <laughs> April. A- right, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. He was born April 23rd, mm. 1564. And he died. Uh, scant 50. April 23rd. Yep. He's born and died on the same day. Yeah, I remember that. April 23rd, I think. I want to say if he I'm was not mistaken, like 54 is or my, the anniversary of Amanda and my first date. Nice. Nice. It may have been April 24th. It's, it's right in that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. April 25th is and my birthday. nothing to do with Shakespeare. Nice. Yeah. But, yeah. I'm going to say Shakespeare I'm was... I'm going to ask right now and get that... Yeah, I think you should figure it out. We're right, nailing yeah. down. It's about the most important thing that we could get figured out. I'm going to say Shakespeare was in his 50s. I want to say like 54? So that would be... I can't do the math. What did we say? So uh, 1964, or sorry, 1564 plus 54, whatever it's that... close. You're going to be very close there. Okay. But I can't. 16 That would be 1618 if you're right. Okay. Nine. A little low. 1611. 16, Still low. 1615. Oh, no, it Still couldn't low. be 1611. 1616. 1616. Yeah, <laughs> I'm the going to accuse him of working on the King James Bible. He's got to at least be. In the King James era, yeah. yeah. So he mainly wrote during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, mm-hmm. but he was a little bit with King James of Scotland as well. Yeah. And so. Who accuses him of having written the King James Bible? He's not having written, but of having been involved in, at least in the Psalms. Really? Yeah. They're, they're, I never heard that one before. Yeah, there there are certain Psalms in the King James that are just, they're, they're iambic. Yep. They may even be iambic pentameter, but they, they have a very sort of Shakespearean... Look this up, and listeners can, you listener can look it up for yourself and see if, fact check me on this, but... There has been, to my recollection, some people suggesting that Shakespeare well, makes sense. might I mean, have been involved, at least on, on the Psalms. Yeah, because Queen Elizabeth died in 1603, so he was 13 years into King James's reign. I mean, this when was the King James Bible translated? It began in 1610. So it would have been the last six years of his life? Yeah, it's the, the one that people have a conspiracy <laughs> theory, I guess, about is Psalm 46. Okay. Which in the King James Bible contains the word shake and spear, <laughs> I guess. So Interesting. That's really, that's fun. Which is actually the kind of thing that he would do. Oh, he, yeah. He does it in a sonnet. He has those sorts of witty references to his own name. Yeah. Though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, and then later it says, and cutteth the spear in sunder. Huh. God is our refuge and strength, the very help, present help in trouble. It's that one. I mean, by the 1610s. Ten- he was towards the end of his life. He retired around that time to go back to Avon upon Stratford, a very wealthy man. 
And this is when he took all his earnings from his success in the theater and bought up some property there and lived out the rest of his life fairly happy and died shortly after his daughter's funeral because he drank and ate too much. <laughs> so he knew how to party. Mm. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Mm -hmm. I'm still going to say that we have Shakespeare to thank in part for <clears throat> it's just undeniable. For the King James Bible. For the King James just Bible. Cracking it, cracking the code on yeah. on the uh, on the English language. Mm -hmm. Like Well, yeah, because we've talked about this before, but the Elizabethan age was like the golden era of the English language. It was coming into its own, it was coming right out of Middle English. If and, it was coming into full bloom, and he is the highest expression yeah. of that, and had in his entire body of work led right up <clears> to <throat> the work of translating the Bible, then yeah. He had undeniable influence, and there's a reason why people look back and want to see his hand, and that is because they see his influence, yeah. and that influence is real. So, sorry to hijack. Well, no, and at the very least, whoever did translate that psalm, mm -hmm. even if it wasn't Shakespeare, they may have done that as an homage to Shakespeare. I always think of, I mean, I know, I realize this is simplistic, but Psalm 8 sounds to me so much in the King James, like Hamlet's little speech about what a piece of work is man, how infinite right. in faculties. Yeah. And then you have what is man that thou art mindful of him and all this kind of stuff. It had to have been in <clears throat> They had to at least, somebody head, was at right? least like thinking about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, because unlike, to go back to what we were talking about to start off, unlike today where Shakespeare is kind of remembered as this these cold popular phrases that are like for the elite only are that you study in school and that most kids and most people don't really have any room for outs unless Boz Lerman gets a hold of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And tries to popularize it. But they, we think of him as like this, like classical symphony, right? That you go to the theater and you're very quiet and you're very respectful. It's almost like going to church when you go watch a Shakespeare play. Similar to like going and seeing someone perform Bach or Beethoven. Mm -hmm. When even those guys, it wouldn't have been that way. Like with Mozart or with Liszt, women were throwing their undergarments up onto the stage with Liszt when he played his piano pieces. Like the, we just, there's just this disconnect with the way that these artifacts that we have today were actually originally accepted. Mm. And so just like today, we quote Marvel movies and those sorts of things in the, the parlance. Shakespeare would have been a part of the parlance at that time as well. Right. And so it's very easy to imagine that he would have had that sort of influence and that it would have been more than somebody wanting to be academic about quoting him, but just because he had that much influence over the vernacular. Does it make sense what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. And so, <clears throat> yeah, his genius was that he was in a period of time where the English language was blooming. It was literally blooming into what we have today. It was coming out of Middle English, which was this hodgepodge of the Germanic Anglo-Saxon influences and all that. And then also the French influences from the Norman invasion of Amer of England. It's almost as said America. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and <clears throat> sorry, a little bit of COVID brain here. Do people know that I had? They do now. They do now. Oof. So yeah, so we have that happening. And so it's just the prime moment for Shakespeare, or as someone of Shakespeare's genius, to step in and create new words, have fun with language. And there are all sorts of words that at least people claim we have in our language today because of Shakespeare. Like he chose, he was the first to apparently put the word I and ball together. So we now have eyeball. Somebody was eventually going to do it. Mm -hmm. So, but it was just, but it was, in, in other words, it was this prime 
prime time <laughs> for someone to step on the stage. Prime time Shakespeare. <laughs> prime time Shakespeare. And create this beautiful junction of language and story. And that's mm-hmm. what he did. And so <clears throat> as we've talked about a lot on this show, we don't know a lot about who Shakespeare was. If anybody wants to go and read, I think one of the best, and maybe it's outdated now, but I think Stephen Greenblatt's book, Will in the World, is really good because Stephen Greenblatt was what we call a new historicist. If you want to know more about new historicists, you can go and listen to the episodes we did, what, two years ago or so on criticism? Yeah. Which were pretty good episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the new historicism came out of the postmodernism where people were just about reader relationship to a book. And he's like, well, let's take a step back and let's actually think about how books are historically contextualized. It's a Marxist movement as well. I mean, let's think about the way that cultures produce texts. That's kind of what new historicism was. But one thing that I appreciate about the new historicists is that they actually think about <clears throat> how art is created by a group of people mm-hmm. and a person that's related to that group of people. And so like, it, in other words, it doesn't come out of a vacuum. Right. Right. So I think one of the misconceptions we have is like they're, the idea of genius is that they people throw around, especially I think the classical and world and things like that, this idea that genius is somehow transcendent of its culture mm-hmm. and it taps into this great mystical conversation, right? Yes. So we have, <laughs> I mean, the, you look like you needed some effort. No, I'm there. just, yeah, I just, I want to make sure you guys are with me. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> yes, yes, yes. Very you guys much. Didn't, you didn't. Absolutely. Right, Brandon. Oh, yeah. I mean, you guys, did, yeah, you guys proved so well that you listened by the uh, earlier <laughs> in your exam. There goes um, <laughs> Brandon after the homeschoolers again. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But it's, so no, we have the canon, the great conversation, and there's this idea that like from Aristotle up to present, there's been this just one great dialogue between the great masters of men and that they've all been conversing. And there is some sense to that, to that's the reality and how things are working. But there's also an even greater sense they were products of their time and they were writing to the people that they lived among. I think the best, uh, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I think if you want to hear some good discussions about that, listen to our episodes on Homer, because I think that's one of the most egregious examples of the place where that type of person has said, this is part of the great conversation. And if they're a Christian, they'll even find these Judeo-Christian elements in it that they think are there. And it's like, no, it's just an action story. It's It's just about some braggart killing all his enemies and having sex with goddesses and stuff. It's got some pretty language, yeah, because but there's, there's nothing dignified or about the human experience of Homer. Because Homer was not writing primarily to Plato. Homer was singing his poem primarily to people sitting around the fire with right. him. Right, and they want to hear about sex and violence. Yeah, yeah. just like I mean, that's the way it is with any writer. They primarily want to have an audience, and mm-hmm. that audience happens to be the ones who are alive at the same time as them. <laughs> <laughs> and so they want to get them to read their book. They mm. want to get them to read their story. And with Shakespeare, it's no different. He had a fairly modest education as far as we know. There's evidence that he went to some of the schools in his town, that his dad, pretty high up in the local government. But other than that, we don't know a lot about him. There's evidence in his plays that he had some of the normal schooling of the day that he would have had, he would have been introduced to Plutarch. He would have been introduced to some of the stories of the Kings of England, because I mean, you just see this evidence in his own works and in the way that he can tie 
his characters, such as Hamlet or Julius Caesar, to these stories that would have obviously, he'd had to have had, had some education. Either that or he was Francis Bacon. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are the two options. Those are the two options. Or what is the Earl of Oxford? Mm-hmm. I guess there are three options, right? Yeah. So Elizabeth Browning. <laughs> yes, he was Elizabeth Browning <laughs> in a time machine. In a time machine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. He's Doctor Who. He's Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. Who is famously now a woman, right? Nah, he's a black guy. I think he just oh, changed. Oh, well, yeah. good. He's yeah. diverse. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to go through all of the. Yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether he's a black guy yet. He's going to be a black guy soon if he's uh, not. He's just cast. He's just cast, yeah. Pretty sure. So they haven't actually changed. I'm, I don't know. I've never watched Doctor Who. Yeah. But I did. I did oh, Jake, headline. admit it. You're a big who head. Yeah. Or whatever they call themselves. What do they call themselves? Whoites. I don't Whoites. Know. <laughs> Whovians. Whovians. Who's from Whoville? Who's from Whoville? (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Whoville. Have you guys driven up to the Indy airport ever and passed by the Dr. Who store? Yes. And wondered how in the world that store has stayed in existence? It's been there Mm -hmm. for like three or four years. Is it just in a cornfield? It's been there for longer than that. Much longer than three or four years. Really? Yeah. But it's weird. I don't know how. It's not, it's, it's got to be a front on the southern side of Mooresville. And you can, Always tell because it's got that British telephone booth sitting outside of it. <laughs> okay, and it, yeah, you, it, it's, it's got to be the nerdiest front for some sort of laundry. I mean, I always assume a place like that is a decrepit little hellhole where nerds play games and don't actually make any money. But they also, it's, it's like they took their mommy's basement and they made a store. Uh, it's one of those kinds of comic book stores. It's, its own or, building, and it's a fairly large building. Yeah. Then it's got to be an independently wealthy dude that just wants to hang out and talk Doctor Who with people. I suspect that that's what it is. And if they do make money legitimately, then they make money because they have an online. Yeah. That's got to be it. Yeah. I mean, maybe people fly through the Indianapolis airport just so they can go to the. No, it is not close. Is it not close? It's down in Mooresville. It's in Mooresville. Okay. Maybe I haven't drawn it. I mean, it's close if you think. 20 minutes is close, 20, mm-hmm. 25 minutes is close, but this is like, no. but you, you have no reason if you flew into Indy to ever drive it's past like, it, unless, unless you are, it is so far south, it's actually south of Mooresville, that you, yes. you are headed to Bloomington or some other place in south central Indiana if you're going to drive by it from Indy. Yeah, but anyways, we want to thank our sponsor today. Yeah. You're, you're headed to <laughs> Martinsville. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. It is. It is weird. I've, I've never noticed that before. I am the, and I'm the captain of visual observation. It's what I'm famous for. So look for it next yeah. time. Yeah. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. And see. And see. You okay. see, but you do not observe. Yes. Right? Yes, yes, yes. <sighs> so. That's a different book we're doing. Or I observe, but I do not see. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the two. All right. So Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Was Shakespeare. Yeah. Nice. Glad we got that settled. Was Shakespeare a Dalek? Yes. No, Christopher Marlowe was a Dalek. Yeah, because... Exterminate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe the Daleks exterminated Christopher Marlowe. Uh, that's probably what happened. He was I a am spy. such a Doctor Who fan that I have... No idea what a Dalek absolutely is. Absolutely. They're the upside-down trash can looking... They're like the bad guys of, of Doctor Who. I'm not a huge... Who, I'm not a huge, not a huge fan, fan <laughs> but I know what a Dalek is. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't even have a picture of an upside-down trash can man i guarantee you if you've walked by like if you went to that store you would see 14 cutouts of daleks everywhere on the windows how do you spell it d-a you go ahead (laughs) l-a-k i didn't know dalek (laughs) (laughs) 
So Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. So we we don't know a whole lot about it. D-A-L-A-K? Mm-hmm. I think so. And we've dealt with this in pri- uh, prior episodes, the fact that we're not too fond of the that Shakespeare it, wasn't that Shakespeare. It appears to be like a Dutch word for kidney or something. Yeah. Doctor Who's greatest enemy is the... D-A-L-E-K, right? Oh, E-L-E-K. Is that what it is? I think so. Yeah, there it is. There it is. You'll see a very imposing upside down trash can looking. Ah, okay. Yeah, I have seen that. Yeah, I thought you had. It's like a metal snuffleupagus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the most what, fearsome what, thing in the galaxy. What, what was that lost in space? Mm-hmm. That's what it reminds me of. Gort, whatever that was. It's about the same quality. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't know a lot about Shakespeare. We're not fond of people who... Yeah, and it was a strangely conservative ideal that gave rise to the Shakespeare isn't Shakespeare. It's an anti-progressive, elitist idea. It's, 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 well, none of the common folk could possibly know anything, so it must have been a noble. Yeah, and it's not a surprise that it's tied to that sort of, oh, what's his name, William? Buckley. William Buckley, that, that sort of Joe. Joe Sobrin, yeah, it's all Joe those Sobrin, guys. Those guys that kind of gave rise to that. And it is the a National very, Review, all that stuff. Yeah, and I like some of their thinking, but in particular that is a symptom of their kind of classism. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all kind of downstream of your boy T.S., right? Yeah, exactly. But it is, a, it, is a, it is a symptom of their classism that you have to go to like an Ivy League school in order to think mm. that you can't just be a down-home boy and grow up to be a Shakespeare. And so they, and this is actually where someone like a Stephen Greenblatt who is trying to contextualize and think through who was Shakespeare, what's the evidence we have for Shakespeare, I actually think that... Even the way of thinking about that is so so backwards because you don't yeah you 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 have to recontextualize shakespeare's london like if you think about it just in in on this level that shakespeare's london was smaller than evansville indiana is today yep if your idea of shakespeare's london is this huge metropolitan whatever it just it is sort of like there's a disconnect there because you would never think of Evansville, Indiana that way. But Evansville, Indiana is 10 times, not really 10 times. It's like one and a half times, I think, just in terms of population, mm-hmm. what Shakespeare's London was. Yeah. yeah. And that's just like some dopey mid-sized city in southern Indiana. I mean, it literally was quite a bit like Evansville because at the time it was a booming metropolis. A lot of economy was coming into it because of Queen Elizabeth's reign and just because of the peace that she brought when she defeated the Spanish Armada. Mm-hmm. All these things that were in, you had, you had the new exploration of the new worlds, exploration of the new worlds, whatever. But yeah, it was, there was a lot of wealth and changes in class were happening. This was kind of at the tail end of the feudal system and the rise of the mar- merchant class. And we've I mean, talked you about could this say before. that because of all of that, London would have still attracted the best minds of all of But England. yeah, but here's the thing is you had lots of money pouring in. And so people had a lot of extra income to spend on their entertainment. Yeah. So all it took was a savvy young storyteller to realize I'm going to take advantage of this. Yeah. And the Thames, kind of like the river here, mm-hmm. ran through it. And on the other side, the Kentucky side is where they set up the theater, mm-hmm. the Globe Theater, and so everybody could come. It was kind of like how people build the casinos on the rivers in, in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Yep. You, you, that's where all the debauchery could happen. So you had your theater district, and that's and it was, in my mind, a little bit like the, the Moulin Rouge area, right? Mm-hmm. You just mm-hmm. It was seedy, and that's where people went, and you 
had a fun time and like the, the play. What even, happened there stayed there. Yeah, and... like the, even the King Lear plays, people were yelling and screaming and having fun. And you had cross dressers coming out on stage in between acts to do a little dance mm-hmm. and entertaining people. It was a fun time at the theater. Yeah, we've been. Wa- I'm sorry. I know this makes me so basic, but we've been watching Ken Burns' country music documentary because we just had a little vacation in Nashville. I've, recommend, I've heard that recommended. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you got to put up with a lot of zoom ins and zoom outs on photographs and Ken, Ken Burnsy kind of stuff. My parents really liked it. Wanted, yeah, wanted no, I, I would yeah. recommend it to anybody. I mean, it's 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 wonderful. It's like eight hours long, but lots of great music and okay. fun interviews and stuff. But the honky-tonk bars of the 60s and 70s are what you're yeah. making, which the famous spoof of them is in Blues Brothers where they're trying to sing and there's a... a kind of a fence between the the cage so that people can throw their beer bottles. Apparently that's not a spoof or an exaggeration at all. That's just how it was because people were having so much fun. And then you have poets like Willie Nelson or Merle Haggard, like these people who actually have something to say and lived experience, (laughs) grew up in the depression, Mm -hmm. grew up with nothing. And they're getting up and it's like this, this, this almost math problem of how do you make all these people shut up and stop throwing their beer bottles while you tell them the saddest story that you've ever heard or the funnest, most fun sex romp story that you've ever heard, or you you just have to entertain above the noise somehow. And that's what Shakespeare, he, he unlocked this of all. So at this time, then you had the growth of this major theater area in England and you had Thomas Kidd, you had Marlowe, you had all these great playwrights coming out of this time. And they were pointing forward to Shakespeare. And then you had Shakespeare who kind of really unlocked it with beautiful, wonderful, engaging language and really kind of sometimes raunchy stories or really sad stories that could speak above the noise. Cause you're mm-hmm. right. The, the theater itself, like the globe theater that he and some, so he moves to London. He becomes known in this theater world. Eventually he, with another group of men, they get funded and part of the guild, the actors guild, and they build this theater called the globe. And it's like the place to go. It's this, he has balcony seating for the upper class so they can be kind of away from the fray. And then down in the orchestra area, you had the the stage that sticks out in between the people and the people could actually literally put their hands on the stage. Like there's, I think we've talked about it before, but in Julius Caesar, he talks about how he could smell the breath of the people as they were calling out for him to be Caesar. And most scholars think that that Shakespeare kind of winking towards what it's like to be an actor at the Globe. Mm-hmm. You're, you literally mm-hmm. smell the people around you. They're that close to you as an actor. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it would have been, that's what it would have been like to be at the Globe and it would have been loud. And the only way to win over the crowds would have been to have a story that was like, worth engaging their attention for a while. Like not everybody is there primarily because they want yeah. your story. Some of them are there to get drunk. Some of them are there to have and That's sex. why I think that like some of the more successful Shakespeare in the parks that mm-hmm. I've been to are the ones where the actors are a little bit more over the top and they are trying to engage the audience as opposed to like just being this cold yeah. dead thing up there that we're all supposed to sit back with our bow ties on and watch. Yep. Right. Like I remember the best yeah, one I ever just, went to just, was. I mean, it, <clears throat> it's why Stephen King or Steven Spielberg or Lin-Manuel Miranda or whoever is the real comparison. Cause you have this junction of craft and ability to connect mm-hmm. yeah. on a popular level. That is just, that's what's unmatched. It's not the high genius of his 
crafts uh, 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 of the the poetry of his words or whatever else. It's all of it together in one, creating this sort of like mass effect. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody knows what Romeo and Juliet is about. It's got a hook. No, mm-hmm. Nobody could tell you what the Jew of Malta is about. I mean, it's about a Jew in Malta. I think he takes revenge and bad things happen or something like yeah. that. But it's like, name a hook from another great Elizabethan playwright. You, you Maybe you could say like, such and such a thing I remember from high school is about revenge or something. I mean, even like in this particular play that we're talking about, Romeo and Juliet, it's one of his earlier plays. And so you can kind of see the things that are going to become really Shakespearean kind of working out here. But like the final scene is in a graveyard. Right. And at the end, everybody's trying to rush to get there in time. You have Friar Lawrence who's trying to get there. You have Romeo who's trying to get there, right? Everybody's, and then it all converges in this final mm-hmm. scene. It's just kind of brilliant the way he works it out. Right. And then he gets delayed, right? And then because of the sickness or whatever. And so it's just really, you can tell that he knows, he's figuring out plot mechanics. Yeah. And, he, and it works pretty well there at the end. You you feel like you're hoping, you know, just get there, get there. And course he doesn't right yeah i think the more we've done shakespeare over the years the more i've learned to appreciate or or the the less patience i've had with what am i trying to say it used to be that my first my go-to would be let me find a really cinematic movie of shakespeare and i still think it's good to find a good performance of shakespeare but what i don't like is like me and jake watched the michael fassbender version of macbeth Yep. And it's very subdued and it tries to find sort of a real psychological through line. And to me, it it actually makes the play not make sense. And then you go and watch a performance of what's his face? Captain Picard. What is that guy's name? Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart doing it. And he's acting and he's performing. And it's all just a series of sort of guitar solos. And it doesn't need to make any psychological sense, actually. It's just about performance mm-hmm. and cutting through the noise of this, in this case, imaginary and then you, audience. And then you take it a step farther and go watch a stage production of it and see how a good stage director yep. plays with the audience and gets the audience, gets audience <clears throat> participation and audience involvement and the exchange is in the right places and make sure the, the right jokes land. And then it's like, oh yeah, okay. Shakespeare is... He's made to be acted. He's made to be for the stage. He's made to be like that over the top. Yeah, is why I don't love, we're doing it as a dystopian, uh, fascist, whatever. And I don't love like we're gender swapping all, but I understand why Shakespeare invites that sort of thing. And I think it can be done pretty well. Yeah, there is a playfulness to his place. Yeah, it's playful. And let's remember that Hamlet wasn't dressed like an Elizabethan, like Shakespeare was already ripping these people out of their time and place and kind of bringing them to his time and place. So I don't really have a problem with ultimately with the kind of updated, we're all using guns kind of stuff, as long as it's not stupid, like which Baz Luhrmann is, by the way. I tried to rewatch that one. Anyway, we'll get to that. But But yeah, so I think it's, yeah, it's really important just to keep that in mind about Shakespeare because I think that that, realizing that about him is a good antidote to the sort of cold codifying of him that happens with, the William F. Buckley mm-hmm. crowds, where they imagine that they're so smart. And the reason that they're so smart is because they went to a good university. So therefore, everybody who's that smart is, yeah. And it's kind of funny because it's the same thing that then the conservatives will, today, like the Fox News people, will level at the liberals. Like they're, they're the intelligentsia, right? Mm-hmm. 
but they're not the ones that came up with that idea of Shakespeare, right? It seems like that should be a liberal idea. Like right. the intellectuals, they're the ones that get to rule the lower classes because they went to, they went to Harvard. Well, the great irony of politics today is that <clears throat> the liberals of today are the, the neoconservative fascists of yesterday. And, yeah. but I guess we don't have time to talk about that on. But anyway, I, I just think it's kind of funny that you have some of the conservatives who champion that view of Shakespeare, but it's a very unconservative. Well, yeah, we, you're right. We don't have time to tear into that. But still, right. when the reality is, if you look at history with genius, this for one, this idea of genius that we have today is a completely made up concept that comes from the Romantic era where people had this idea that the genius was going to take the place of the priest. And so the genius has become little gods because there is no God anymore. And so who do we look for for divine inspiration? These geniuses that sometimes have the spark of inspiration that can maybe save us. And that's what you see today, like with your David Foster Wallace's and these, because we were talking about him earlier. But like, so you get this movie where people are like going on a Mecca to go see a pilgrimage to go see David Foster Wallace to try and figure him out, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're hoping that maybe his deep genius can save them, but all it ends up being is empty and he kills himself. Right. Have you seen the movie? What's uh, it called? The one with Jason Segal? Yeah. I don't think I did. I yeah. wanted to watch it one time, but so it's, but it's my problem with every biopic about every celebrity genius artist is yeah. they always have that kind of well johnny depp just or not johnny depp john johnny cash since we're in our country he just he rose out of poverty and somehow he had the spark of yeah. whatever and it's like there is some truth to that god does elect certain people to just have a gift it's true he does but it's i think it's our innate desire to look for profits and so we're looking in the wrong places yeah yeah, yeah. So, like Walt Whitman literally said, it's a very American idea of genius too. Walt Whitman literally said that the artists are the new priests of the world, or the poets are the new priests. Well, of the world. it gets so. mingled up with the Horatio Alger story, yeah. right? And it is the artists who tell that story, and so it's the artist recast as the rags to riches yeah. up by my own bootstraps on on what merit on my grand artistic yeah. genius. Yeah, but so many of these stories forget the bootstraps, which is what I resent. Like you you actually have to pull yourself up and do work and instead we want to just be like, well, yeah. this person it was, was magical. So, so divinely inspired that his wife walked out on him or Jack walked out on him one day yeah. and he said hit the road and then he sat down at a piano and hit the road Jack just yeah. came flowing out of him. The muse spoke. <clears throat> when one of my so with Shakespeare, we have these quartos and folios, and that's the way that we still have, we have his plays today, because the whole printing press was becoming a thing. But even then, there are different editions of his plays, and some of them were written down by people who were going in and listening, but some of them were with like actor's notes written in it and changes that were making happening at the last minute. So there's evidence that even Shakespeare was recreating the pristine Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't yeah. you be... Constantly, if you were, uh, if you were producing these plays, wouldn't you constantly be editing them? Yeah, of you've course. Done your first run. Now you've got your second. Yeah, run. Yeah, or you look oh, out there and you say, like, "Oh, that the you, Duke of you, Mustard is here. Let's add something because I think he'll think this right, is funny." Or he may be offended mustard. or think that this aspect is yeah, going so to be. That, so let's cut, cut that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even more simple, that didn't get a laugh. Exactly. Or everybody, exactly. everybody started shuffling in their seats when they were supposed to be crying there. So yeah, and so yeah, or you come back ten years later to do your. 10th round of Romeo and Juliet, but there's been a eight year break mm -hmm. and you're like, well, this just doesn't inspire me anymore. Right, I, yeah. could, I, I just want to change it. Yeah, I just yeah. want it to be different. And so 
what we have today is kind of like the fossil and everybody looks at the fossil and thinks, well, that must be the way it was originally. Like it came out of Shakespeare already fossilized. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that shake in that every single word is like divine inspiration. But again, this idea of genius, that the geniuses are the new gods and that we can't touch their words. And that's not even, that's not the way it it's, was. It's a it's, bad comedian yeah. who takes, who sits down and writes all of his jokes and then delivers the same exact routine over and over. No comedian doesn't night to night, even if he's a big shot on a tour, night to night, try to find ways to improve his material and get more laughs and yep. sharpen his delivery and tweak his jokes here and there so that when you get the pristine special on Netflix or whatever at the end of it, yep. It uh, is also, the cumulative work of testing the jokes out in little private shop, coffee shops or whatever and among friends and then honing it on tour and trying to get the big laughs from the stage. Well, and also I just think an audience is so, so unpredictable. I mean, you can prepare for an audience, but my experience of any kind of public speaking, any kind of uh, giving a speech, anything like that is – the laughs are never quite where you think they're going to be. The reaction is oh, never the, the sad part. It's just like you can not predict the thing, the, the one surefire thing that you think is going to kill that you just know like this is this is my secret weapon. Everyone, and I'm going to destroy with this. They, whether it's making people laugh, cry, whatever, they're like, eh. And then some throw off thing. Yeah. They remember for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Well, yeah. I've my biggest point of personal comparison to this actually is doing weddings. Like you cannot you if you do a, a wedding at your home church and you can count on knowing that the audit that 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 your congregation that the people there at the wedding are going to be <clears throat> half or two thirds the people from your congregation that you can count on getting staying in your old beats mm -hmm. and getting the right laughs and the right response and the right warmth. And those people carrying along the one third or the half of the people there that are from out of town and have no contacts, but you pick up and you go and do a wedding in Texas, or you go do a wedding somewhere else because it's a college student or whatever. Or I did my, my first wedding in Evansville a couple of years ago. And man, that, that was one of the worst experiences. Like I love doing weddings. I really enjoy it. I tend to think I'm pretty good at weddings, but that wedding, that first wedding in Evansville was like a disaster. It was like the worst experience I've ever had doing wow. anything like that because I just wasn't ready for how far away I would be from my target audience. I just like none of my jokes landed. Nobody got it. Like, well, I'm you're, as you as you talk, I'm thinking about I, I've been a best man any number of times and had to do best man speech speeches, and I really don't like them because I mean you'd think I, I think I could say this without undue pride, like you'd think I could kill with a best man speech, but yes. it's really hard for me to calibrate. Right, even with seventy percent of the people that I know, there's those thirty percent that I don't. And it's just like you never know who you're actually talking to, what you're actually. It's like you're targeting computer. It's so hard to get it to lock on. Well, and so much of that, like in a, in the context of a wedding, for example, is like how 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 many people are going to be queuing off of the mother of the groom or the mother of the bride, right? So even those people that would normally, under normal circumstances, be with you, if they're feeling any kind of tension because right. of other people in the room, 
they may not give you, like if they would give it to you, you could carry even the mother of the bride or whatever it is that is the issue in the room. But if they're feeling that tension, so it's like, and then you think about Shakespeare, it's like, well, okay, there could be like royalty here, mm-hmm. right? He's got to figure out how to carry the royalty <clears throat> and carry the crowd and pull it all together. And that crowd can change night to night. Yep. Well, and the fascinating thing is, you just made me think about another big factor in wedding toasts and things like that, which is the room itself, the the yes, physical space, right. the sound system, the crappy sound system that they refuse to pay for a good one. The, the fact that Shakespeare was working in the particular venue that he worked in means we got a particular set of plays. They would be That's completely right. different if oh, yeah. the room was different. That's right. He wrote, he designed a theater. Well, to be fair, he designed the theater, was involved in the designing of the theater that he wanted to write to. Right. But still, you're right. Like, it was all designed to be a very particular experience that you really can't have out of context in in its fullness. You can't take it away from its time. You can't take it away from its place. You can't take it away from any of those things and have all of the elements that it was designed to have in a way that a movie didn't a, a, a theater didn't one theater burn down and then they built the globe or yeah. the globe burned down and then they built the other one. Yep. I mean, I bet you can actually. We probably don't have the a way of tracking it now, but I bet you could track Shakespeare's plays changing between those two venues. Absolutely. In in the venues, you you could go back and have a conversation with them about why the second one, the changes that were made and why. Right. And he'd say things like, well, we could never do Lear at the old one, but we could, we can do it here Yeah, because it is that, that sort of thing is that significant to that sort of performative process. Yeah. Yeah. And it would change too, because he would go to, a royalties mansions and they would have masks and plays there. Right. Well, and like you would have the great set designers that would come to those particular places. And so you would have different from night to night, it would change based on where you were, who you were performing for. And so we think about just church planning. Our church today is so far different from a year ago. Yeah. A year ago, we're 40 people meeting in a back room at the YMCA and half of those people aren't here anymore. Right. And now we're like 100 people meeting in a gym. Everything's different. Everything's changed. The sermons have changed, and the length of the sermons have changed, and the kinds of things that you say have all changed. Everything has changed dramatically. And you wouldn't even, if you were along for the ride, there there would have been places where you felt it. Mm-hmm. But everything changes as the people change because yep. you're working. There's a way to do that that is, I'm a, an ear tickler and a people pleaser. And there's a way to do that that is just, no, you have to preach to the people God's given you mm-hmm. and you have to be taking them somewhere. But yeah, all of that's all of that's going to be... Right. Well, if you were a foolish sort of pastor who was just like, <clears throat> I'm going to do the same thing no matter what the room is like and I just have to be faithful and that's my version of being... Then you wouldn't make it. I mean, yeah, you wouldn't. It's just not. There's nothing pastoral about that right. in the first place. You're not actually caring for people if you're not aware of the dynamics of who and what and where. And even and when. the pressures of time constraints. So we get we get going, and it's like, well, you're allowed to come in at nine, and you have to be out by noon. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, okay, well, everybody feels the pressure of set up and tear down and all these other things, and so the sermon has to be. A, you have to be aware of that in your sermon or else you're going to lose people at a certain point because they're going to be feeling like, oh, we got to get this down and get out. 
and as you get in and as your process gets down and as you get more comfortable and as you build relationships with people at the Y and as the people at the Y are like, oh, we'll just get there an hour earlier and right. everything gets ironed out and you begin to learn what you can do. But um, it's also simple. Like in Evansville right now in the gymnasium where we meet at the YMCA, there is a big, what is it, AC or something that turns on at a certain time. At 11 on the dot. And you, huh. you really want to be done. And everybody just feels it like, oh, uh, okay. That's we, a marker. We should be wrapping up. Yeah. Are, are they right? Nah, it, it's 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 a fake news. Like it's just a sound. Who cares? It can go a little longer, but you got to be aware of the fact, at least, that everybody just shuffled and thought. Ah, there's a Pavlov. There's a Pavlov's dog kind yeah. of trigger that. Oh, I'm gonna be eating lunch soon because we just heard the the fan yeah. the, the fan turn on. It starts drooling. Mm-hmm. It's well, and we needed to be done by that time when we started because it took so long to tear down and clear out of there. It took that full hour anyway. So you. When we started, we felt that pressure of, oh, crap, like, I know that we've gone long and that everybody's going to feel pressure to work harder to get. And now our process is so ironed out. Everybody's familiar. Everybody still has to work and work pretty hard, but it can mostly get torn down in about 20 to 30 minutes. And the why is super chill about us staying there. Right. And so it's just like, well, actually, none of that pressure exists anymore. But the marker that, yeah, that, that says it's little there. Little flag goes that, that right. You know, it's the, still there, yeah. and you have to. And part of being pastoral in that situation is just like being aware. People are going to start checking out, which doesn't mean you always stop. It means you regather your energy. It means you have a story that you tell right there because that always brings them back. It means any number of. It means yeah, you, you, you just you, amp you up have your to signal and say we're not done yet. I have something important left to say. So don't go anywhere and don't check out. Like it means you say, "All right, one more thing, and then we'll be done." Like pastors will a lot of times say things like, "Let me just read this first and tell one more story, and we'll go." And and that makes everybody kind of okay, cool. We're Um, almost there. We're almost there. (laughs) And 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 you don't know what things were like that at the Globe. You don't know what Big Ben Mm -hmm. chimes going off a, a boat in the harbor of the Thames, like whatever it is. It's not like that. No, but it's, it's fun to speculate you know though, it, because yeah, saying, those like, things are those things matter, and they make a big difference. And they would have been any number would have been could have been any number of things like that that would have factored in that we would have never ever yeah. known about that would have never been talked about would have never been written down. Would have never I mean, the one thing we do know is you have a rowdy audience of different classes, and you have to keep their attention, and you have no amplification, which means everything's got to be. You don't have the perfect concert hall. Right. It's got to pop. Yeah. It's got to pop. Gotta Everything's got to pop. Gotta pop. Yeah. Anyway, Brandon, where where were we? I think we were pretty it much done. It is much more like that... Stephen King or yeah. a- any pulp writer. I have to, when I get to the end of this chapter, I have to leave you wanting to turn. Raymond Chandler said, when things flag, have two guys come through the door with a gun. That's yeah. the rule of pulp writing. and. I think that's that that's, true, yeah. that's, 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 that's the, the rule of Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 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 ghost, uh, <laughs> sex, something. <laughs> it's hot outside and a friend's going to kill you. Right. Yeah, somebody's going to die. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Is that context? Yeah, I think so, right? I actually have a couple pieces of context that I just stumbled across in reading about or, or listening to some podcasts or something on Romeo and Juliet. Well, yeah, if you have stuff on the particular play. Yeah. This, well, do, this, well do you have, I I, just other than this is one of his earlier works mm-hmm. in that... Like mid um, mid early, is yeah, mid or mid early. So he had done some stuff before then. His name was out there, mm-hmm. but this is one of his. This is not in his. I thought his name was Bill. Bill, yeah, yeah it's yeah. not out there, Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> what is he gay? <laughs> That's funny. Oh. Uh, <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. Good. Hilarious. <laughs> good, stuff. good joke, guys. <laughs> That's deserving. <laughs> That's on me. It's on I, me as much as anything. Uh, it's eh, mostly me though. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, okay, so I have two pieces of context that I stumbled across. Number one, it is Shakespeare's daughter was 13, which is Juliet's age. Oh, that's which, interesting. Which I think is fascinating. Yeah. So he's probably processing, you know, that. processing things one way or another. Watching out for the little Romeos. Yeah, well, and just the way that she's kind of impetuous and a dreamer. Yeah. But those are lame things to say about Juliet. But whatever she is, it's, it, it comes from Shakespeare's yeah. observation of... His own daughter. Would she have watched this? That's a good question. I don't know. I, my my instinct, my gut says she would have. My gut says that she would have come to the see way Dad that at work. we well, the way that we describe the globe. I never think of it being a place fit for children. And yeah. huh. but then again, a thirteen year old, <clears throat> thirteen. I mean, this is a marriageable. Exactly. This is a woman. Basically, it's yeah. basically a woman in their society. Did kids go to the globe? Theater. Let's just see if Google tells us. They do now. We welcome all ages to our performances, and anyone under the age of three goes free. <clears throat> in Children sh- invade Taiwan. What? <laughs> Audiences teach Shakespeare. Who came to the theaters? Describe the crowd as a gang of porters and carters. Others talked to servants and apprentices, spending all their spare time there. Every royalty loved watching a play. They didn't go to theaters. Did children go to the Globe Theater? This is good podcasting. Audiences in Shakespeare's day. I mean, we know women weren't allowed to perform on the stage, so. Hmm. I mean, Can I'm not, I? not finding anything as we're doing our research here. That came across this. This is pretty fun. The original Globe was built by the theater company Shakespeare was in, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, later known as the King's Men. It was erected using timbers recycled from the theater in Shoreditch, the first playhouse to put on Shakespeare's work. Their old landlord, a Mr. Allen, wouldn't say recycled. He'd prefer the word stolen. The story goes that Mr. Allen refused to renew their lease for the land the theater stood on. So the company, including Shakespeare, armed with daggers and cudgels, (laughs) snuck onto Allen's land while he was away for Christmas. They took all the main timbers and stored them in a yard north of the Thames. That's amazing. That's fascinating. So, Jake, you had to step out for a moment, but Brandon just read a little thing that he found, not about children in Shakespeare's, but it was about how Shakespeare stole all the materials. From the first theater because the guy wouldn't renew his lease. Guy wouldn't renew his lease. So Shakespeare and his friends, armed with daggers, go and just take all the materials. While the guy's away (laughs) for Christmas. (laughs) Merry Christmas. All the materials. Like the timbers. They just stole all the timbers from his playhouse. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. What a boisterous road. I feel like I've heard that story before, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So many stories. Yeah. There's so much Shakespeare apocrypha. Well, I don't think we're going to answer the question today of kids and Shakespeare. Mm. Nothing I've I, I found. Yeah. So I'm, here's the story of it burning. Yeah. On June 29th, 1613, during a performance of Shakespeare's Henry VIII, some small cannons were fired with no balls inside them, but using real gunpowder. The thatched roof caught alight. The whole thing burned down in around an hour. No one was hurt, but one man's trousers caught fire. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, someone close to him threw beer on the flames. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> It really does put me in mind of all the stories of the early performances of these country guys. So, yeah, Shakespeare's daughter being 13, I think, is just interesting. I think it 
I think it helps support the case that Shakespeare is not being too malicious to Romeo or, and well, especially not to Juliet. Like yeah. he, <clears throat> he has some sympathy for these young lovers and especially for the girl. Like he doesn't yeah. just want to portray them as, as foolish. The, the other piece of context that I sort of boned up on for this was just the state of marriage at the time. And I was listening to a thing where the guy was saying, you just have to understand Romeo and Juliet as being just downstream of the initial reformation of Martin Luther and all these guys, because the popular idea now is that children can choose their own spouse. The father has real authority, but no lawful marriage should be opposed by parents. This is what all the the great reformers said, and you could appeal to the church for this. But there's this tension because we are coming out of a more feudal sort of arranged marriage timeline and so you feel the combustibility of Juliet's parents want her to choose but they want her to choose the man that they've already chosen and when she doesn't dad feels like he can put his foot down mm-hmm. but we're just we're in a really interesting tipping point yeah. right right here where we're moving towards what, what do you call it I, I don't I keep wanting to say free love but that's not right we're moving towards what we have today, you, you fall in love with somebody and you ask, and woman you, has a choice. The woman has a choice. Well, and the man has a choice too. We're yeah. moving out of arranged marriages and we're moving yeah. into, which is something that we have to thank for Luther and Calvin and those guys were real big on choice. On choice. Yeah. Really? On, I mean, I mean, they were big. Yeah. On, you can read about any number <clears throat> of cases like this in Calvin's Geneva and there are historians who've done some really great work on it where they just simply say you, you just don't have. The right to stand between, to stand in front of a lawful marriage. No lawful mm. marriage should be opposed by the parents. Yeah, that's how they yeah. would put it. Interesting. Well, good. You can discourage, you can encourage, you can say no to an unlawful marriage. But at the end of the day, if they found each other, they love each other, and there's nothing really standing <clears throat> the in their way. responsible, competent, moral agents in the eyes of the law. Yeah. In the eyes of the city. Then in any case... You're not keeping your daughter lo- under lock and key. It's kind of like, I mean, the, this is a bad analogy, but the insofar as the sexual revolution in the 60s opened the door to all these dangers and these conflicts that come with free love, uh, people saying, we're not going to do arranged marriages anymore. We're going to do uh, love-based marriages and respect. That opens the door to a lot of conflicts. And I mean, I think it it's right that it happened, but it still opens the door to all, yeah, all there's kinds a lot of things. Of, I mean- this is one thing that you see sort of as you as you get older. There's just a lot of wisdom in arranged marriages where your parents actually know better what makes for a good marriage. Statistically, and, they work. I mean, the divorce rate, all that kind of reason, stuff. There are actual really good reasons for that. And huh. but but also you're not you're not going to be arranging any marriages for that, your kids. I that's right. All mine. Right, they're all arranged. You've you already got it. You, yeah. They were born, and you signed some I, I, there's a degree to which good families still do this sort of thing. Sure, right? They they just do it uh, with. But I don't think they do it much differently than they right. did it historically. Yeah, we watch these movies where it's like your father wants you to marry the, uh, and it's like really mm-hmm. you think that a, a father, any father, any decent father wasn't tender to his daughter, didn't and her care what she and thought, all that sort like, of thing. Oh. So it's just like well. We have a pretty good idea of the kind of young man 
that we'd like you to marry and that would be good for you and the kind of family that you should marry into. And I think Juliet's father is actually a good portrait of a bad father in that he wants to give her the freedom to do it. And he's like, yeah, cool, great. And and then when she does something that he doesn't like. He blows up. He blows up and says, no, no, no. We're going to annul the crap out of that. And you're going to marry this other guy and you're going to do ex- He becomes a authoritarian, but only after he's pushed. And you can imagine all kinds of situations like that were happening here and now, just as they happen to this day. So... Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to well then the number of fathers that just don't know their daughters right so they can imagine oh yeah you can marry whoever you want because of course who you want to marry is going to be who I want you to marry and he happens to be a, a rich doctor and his name that, is Paris yeah yeah exactly yeah and then he's just like shocked and surprised and well shocked and surprised because he 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 had no clue who his daughter was yeah yep. and to be fair neither did she so. I like this play. I like this play a lot. I think it's fun to talk about. Well, are we getting into it? Well, I could say the baggage plane's going over. <clears throat> yeah. Which indicates baggage check, the, the baggage plane. Man, these things start out <laughs> as like little formulas that actually make sense and can bring along a new audience, and then they just <laughs> turn into crap. <laughs> they just d- devolve. <laughs> they crawl back into the ocean. <laughs> Uh, See it, the walking shark? Yeah. It's it, shark week. Yeah, that thing's creepy. What? There's just a shark that can move on land. It's oh, a land wow. Shark. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yikes. <laughs> it's called Jacob Mensa. <laughs> it's just um, got, I mean, it's just a shark with fins, but it will, will look sort of like crawl up on rock. It's, yeah, it's, it's no bigger than this. Right. It's just kind of like lizard-like or like a... Still, you don't want no land shark of any size coming at you. That's terrifying. Well, listen, the plane is going over. Planes have baggage, which indicates baggage check. The, where we talk about the baggage that we bring. Jake, what baggage did you bring to Romeo and Juliet? I read Romeo and Juliet for the first time in my freshman or sophomore year of high school. And a part of a Shakespeare unit that was a profound experience for young 14, 15-year-old Jake in just realizing that there's a world of people out there that are actually really smart and cool and get it, man. Mm, and now you're one of them. And now I was one of them. Thanks, Mr. Shakespeare. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, that to me was like, I had, didn't, reading was was more of an escape up until that point for me, until Shakespeare changed Jesus, it you're all. You're taking your first step into a larger world. I mean, I'd read Twain and Twain, I think, and we've talked about this before, but Twain was a, was maybe my first real sort of like there can be more to 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 the literature than an escape. But, but he's a purely destructive force, right, purely negative. Right. The degree to which I sympathized with Huck in Huck Finn in sixth grade or whenever it was I read that, that was its own separate little isolated thing. But I need to redo it. I, I, we're hopefully today going to talk about our book list for 2023. I'm just throwing it out here on the recording. I'm going to push for us to redo Huck next year. I think it's time. It's time. I'm for it. Yeah. So anyhow, that idea then of of literature and the world of literature as a place not just for escape, but for growth and self-discovery and philosophy and any number of other things was sort of opened up to me. I took that first step into a larger world mm. at, that, at that point. So uh, I credit that that little unit with getting me to where I am today as a 
the third wheel on this show. There you um, go. But no other history really with Romeo and Juliet, except except that. Except that. Yeah. Hey, the know. third wheel on the show is still on this show. Better to be a <clears throat> a secretary in Rivendell than a king in Mordor. You know yeah, what I mean? Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guess yeah. <laughs> No, Jake, you're not the third wheel. You're right? not the third wheel, It's Jake. either me or Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> it's me. I know it's not Brandon. <laughs> Brandon, what baggage do you bring to this? Well, uh, The baggage plane, guys. The baggage plane. Yeah, there goes the baggage plane again. It's just sitting in the past. it doesn't start <laughs> strafing us. <laughs> he's dead, right? He's dead. I think yeah. he's dead. Yeah. There's a crop shot. duster that uh, flows close... That flows. that flows close. Whoa. <laughs> that flies close. That uh, crop duster flows close, man. <laughs> There's a cornfield not too far from my house, and they have a crop duster come flying through. You think of Cary Grant every time? I do. It's the yellow, and the dude loves to just be daring and ridiculous. And yeah. Those guys are... It's apparently a pretty have, dangerous job. It's one of the most dangerous. They all have death wishes, I think. Mm. But anyhow... Uh, your baggage, Brennan. My baggage. This was one of Shakespeare's plays that I actually avoided for a long time hmm. because I, it seemed like it was overdone. and You so bougie. Yeah, I was so bougie. Mm-hmm. No, you. You too. Uh, me, I'm bougie. Bougie. Yeah, that's right. Bougie Brandon. Bougie Brandon. <laughs> we got I love name. how that, it just, oh man, that, that word. Bougie. Yeah, drives me nuts. A word bougie. that only bougie people would use. I mean, well, and it gets like, it's the opposite now, right? (sighs) Yeah. It's just stupid. I was walking through at a high school open house. Just the other day? Like literally last night. Some kid was talking about how, they were talking about how this or that was bougie. No, 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 young sir. No. Did you say that? No. Yeah. Did you slap him? I thought about it. But it's a girl. (sighs) If it had been a boy, then I'd say... Slap him. Uh, yeah, horse whip him if you have a horse. Uh, <laughs> with him with the horse? Yeah, with him with the horse. <laughs> That's a Groucho Marx joke. Um, <laughs> if I could give credit where credit is due. Uh, I'd horse whip you if I had a horse. Um, <laughs> uh, man. Okay, so you never read this one because you were too good for it. Because I was too bougie. You're too bougie. <laughs> yeah, and, and too well, boozy. Bougie to usie. Yeah, but I finally taught it to mm-hmm. some high school AP students, and it was great. Yeah. And I think it's a fun play. Mm. I think he uses it and subverts some things. And yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have a chance to talk about all that. Yeah. I feel similar to you, to Brandon, in that I never got, I'm trying to think of a good analogy for this. It's like there's certain things in life that you have to experience metatextually or secondhand, or it's like you can't just come to it innocent. You have to come to it with, someone saying, well, it's not really this, it's actually that, or don't just take this as a simple love story. It's actually, Romeo and Juliet is just such a famous, iconic story that it's hard to just read it as a straight story. You're going to have a teacher or somebody say, well, actually it's this, or actually it's that, or... Everybody has to have a take. Right. Everybody has to have a take. That's why I immediately pushed back on on Jake saying, well, whatever. You it's think. a comedy. Yeah, it's a comedy. You're really uh, whatever, whoever's the whatever. And I'm sure Brandon had a take when he taught his students because you can't not have a take. I'm not really a hater of a take-hater. Take-hater Nathan. A take, yeah. <laughs> Bougie Brandon, One take-hater take Nathan. One take over the line. I just 
it it's one of those things that you can't experience pure. I mean, I just it's it's really hard to get a pure experience of Romeo and Juliet, I don't think. I mean, maybe of of like all literature. I mean, name something that's harder to experience in just a pure naive I'm coming to this fresh. I don't know what it's about. Everybody knows who Romeo and Juliet are and yeah. what happens and everybody kind of has feelings about young love or or I mean it's a metaphor. Yeah. Oh, they're Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, oh, it's Romeo and Juliet over there. Uh, oh, he thinks yeah. he's Romeo. She thinks she's Juliet. All this stuff in the balcony scene, <clears> and it, it's just it's it's really hard to to plug into this in, in a way that you can actually. I think with other like like Macbeth, you may know what it's about, but it's so dense and complex and interesting that you have to read it for yourself and. Romeo and Juliet's just not like that. So I feel like I appreciate it more now. I think I'm able to shed expectations and shed takes. And I watched a version of it, like a, a filmed play of it. And it was just fun. It's just a good story. But but it was hard to approach it. I mean, the other thing is everybody has feelings about love. And especially if you're someone who doesn't have it, which I was in high school, you think it's stupid and you want to be above it. And you want to say that young lovers are dumb and people falling in love are dumb. And if you're a, cri- a conservative Christian, you want to say like, well, actually, we, we need to be godly in the spouse that we choose. And it can't all just be about emotions and Titanic was stupid and all this stuff. And, and so it's just really hard to approach Romeo and Juliet and take its characters at face value and kind of just enter into it. And maybe you shouldn't. I don't know. We'll talk about it. But I think... Well, it- it is interesting that he has any number of characters that play sideways to the romance and come along and let the air out of the bubble and are always sort of like mocking Romeo or whatever. Well, maybe we should just uh, move into the big picture. That's the sound of the camera shutter, bigly bringing us into the part where we talk about the big picture of this play. So maybe we should just answer the question. I mean, what do you guys think that this play is or is about or like what what is your what is your take on old r and j it's rightly categorized as a tragedy tragedy categorized as a tragedy yeah exactly well it's in any case like even if you want to say that the whole point is man they were really foolish and out of sorts and mom and dad on both sides screwed it all up at the end of the day they died right yeah (laughs) Which sucks. <laughs> and that sucks. And they're yeah. two young kids that got caught up together and caught in the cross, star-crossed lovers. Mm-hmm. You know? So you can you can say that their romance was a, was a silly juvenile joke. Uh, but the fact is, young love often has high drama, and it doesn't, when you're in it, feel as stupid as <laughs> it is. And at the end of the day, they all died. Well, yeah, I yeah. think that maybe is what I was trying to get at with my baggage is I'm finally at a place in my life. It's, it's like you long for young love. You have your own juvenile young love. You've, you have your high drama in your life and you feel the stupidity and the immaturity of it if you do have any actual sense. And so you kind of push against that and you become cynical about it and you try and grow past it, which you should but at a certain point, it's nice to get old enough that you can kind of look back on all that with some equanimity and say, yeah, yeah of course I fell in love. My hormones were high. She was pretty like it happens. Everybody goes through it. It's a thing. And and, and it, it felt like that. And, it, and it's not just to be despised. I mean, God obviously designed human creatures to 
do this thing where we become obsessed with each other for a short time and then we get married and it cools off a little bit, but it is part of the process. Like it's, yeah. it's part of the whole darn human experience and it doesn't need to be looked down on just because we all need to eventually grow cool past life. it. It is, it is an, it is a stage and when done properly, a legitimate one. And when done improperly, of course, it leads to tragedy, the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, but it's not yeah. like Shakespeare doesn't know that. Yep. And and I think knowing that his daughter was 13, which I knew, I think, before I watched it this time, really helped because I think he's just <clears throat> saying, yeah, this is what happens and it's sad and maybe don't be stupid like she was kid. But I get it. Yeah. I get it. It, yeah. it felt more paternal and sympathetic this time. Well, yeah, you have, and you have the paternal figures yeah. the, throughout the story. So you have the nursemaid, then you have, she's not, she's maternal. Right. But then you also have the two, her parents. And her dad's not the greatest. Mm -hmm. He's jocular and silly until he needs to be angry and abusive. Right. And then, but the real father figure and probably the tragic figure of the story is Father Lawrence. Right. Because he tries to split the difference and yeah, because fails. he actually he sees he's the he his opening speech is about how things in nature have poisoning goodness in them, and like even something bad can be good at times, but. A, bad, a good thing, too much of a good thing or a good thing put to the wrong use can also be bad. Mm -hmm. That's like the, his opening speech. Isn't that kind of what he says? Yeah, right? I think so, yeah. And then he's the one that is warning Romeo of his fickle nature at the beginning. Like, what happened to Rosalind? Like, weren't you just in love with her? Yeah. And then women fail when there is no strength in men. Right. Like, that's one of his famous lines. And so he's got all this wisdom, but in the end, he doesn't do anything with it and he helps them. But anybody so, who's like, like, I've done a lot of youth group work in my time. Anybody who works with kids that age mm -hmm. knows, like, you can't just crush, crush them. You can't yeah. just say, well, it's stupid that you're in love. Yeah. You, right. you got to find a way to bring them along and to channel some of that energy, mm -hmm. some of that erotic or sexual energy even. You, you've got to find a way not just to stop it, not just to say, well, you're not allowed to be a human being because you're not wise enough to be a human being yet. You have to help them. So I sympathize with Friar Lawrence, not just saying... The sexual energy of young men and young women always needs to be channeled and directed. It will find its way out. Yeah. Right. And that's just the big, that is the, the difficulty of working with teenagers and young people is how do you channel and direct all of that sexual energy in a way that's productive and helpful and useful? Well, young men, you have to direct them to figuring out how to be in a position to get married. Right. And it all has to be, pushed in that direction yep. and not at trying to have the benefits of marriage too early and not in finding other outlets whether for that energy in porn or unproductive things that feel like success like video games or whatever but actually driving themselves mm -hmm. forward but that sexual energy is real and parents often like to pretend their kids are still innocent right and but that's not there well, we actually have a false dichotomy where we say knowledge of the world is the opposite of innocent. And it's like uh, there, there is actually a, wis a wisdom that's innocent that you can strive for at least. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> Even through the horrors of puberty. But yeah, I mean, you imagine a society where people actually do get married young and you imagine Friar Lawrence trying to 
juggle all these balls, having all this political pressure on him, trying to stand outside of it, bring some godly perspective. And it's like, I think you're right, Brandon, he is the real tragic figure because he's the only one that has agency and the the two young lovers are just swept up in their love and going to do what they're going to do. Once they're sort of wound up and released, they're just going to keep moving forward until they, they die or consummate. And Friar Lawrence is the one who's smart enough and above it all to, to potentially make things work. Yeah. Um, and he fails in the end. And he fails. Yeah. And some of it's circumstance, like he gets that plague. Right. Visited by somebody who has the plague. And so then he has to go into quarantine. Right. And so he can't get there in time to stop what's happening. And, but by that point he had also just, he had already helped them get into the situation in the first right. place. He moves so, really fast. And yeah. And so he had had the strength of, to be a good counselor at the beginning, but then when actually faced with having to say a hard no and stop it, he doesn't do it mm-hmm. until it's too late. Until it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. So what does anybody else, what's your big, do you have a big take on Rome? Like what, where do you lead your students with Romeo and Juliet? Well, that's kind of the direction we try to, so we look at in theater, what are the different roles that people, that characters can play? And the two obvious candidates for the tragic hero in the story are Juliet and Father Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Juliet because, but Juliet also seems to be a little bit more, less of an actor in the story, mm-hmm. right? She's acted upon. Right. But she doesn't listen to her parents. She doesn't listen to their, she doesn't listen to good counsel. She does what she wants. And in the end, she's destroyed. Right. And so, and then the other thing that students always find really fascinating is if you look at the actions of each person, right, you, you think about who are the classic villains in a Shakespeare story and what do their, how, how do their actions lead to them being villainous? Mm-hmm. The candidate for villain in the story is actually Romeo. The person who comes in, manipulates yeah. everything, sows discord yeah. and gets everyone killed. And so, and they, they find that fascinating too. Mm-hmm. And I think that for the young men, the point always is that, li- listen, if you don't use your energies in the right way and you refuse to listen to good counsel and you just pursue whatever pretty face you want to because you have no self-control, then you are a villain. Right. And I think Shakespeare is making that point to some Mm -hmm. extent, right? That if young men don't want to have self-control and don't want to listen to older men who are trying to give them counsel, then they do turn themselves... Or even their friends to a degree because even, I mean, Romeo's friends are like... Yeah, Yo, and there's an effeminacy like, and a softness to un, not controlling yourself there, which right. Father Lawrence and tells they point him. Point it out. Yeah, and it, and so Juliet really is yes in her own, in her own way. She allows herself to be to not listen to her father, or to, even though her father may not be worth listening to, but mm. still, and that's his fault, right? But it's still her fault too, right? right? She allows herself to be wooed. She tries to stop. She tries to slow things down, right? Like she, but in the end. Romeo wins, mm-hmm. and it's because of his strong lusts and his inability to control himself. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that 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 ushers us pretty conveniently into no baggage again. <laughs> we have to give our baggage all over again, or that plane could be pulling us into the Hall of Heroes. Welcome to the Hall of Heroes, guys. The place where we talk about the heroes and decide if they measure up. So is that the definitive booking take that 
Romeo is, I mean, I guess I could also usher us into villain's lair. The villain's lair. We can do both at the same time. Nice. That's really disconcerting. <laughs> that is really. It's the Hall of Heroes and really the Villain's strange. Lair at the same time. So we are here to decide where Romeo belongs and how much sympathy. I do feel like Shakespeare, and maybe this is just me sort of back reading into it, the fact that I know his daughter was 13. But I do feel like he has more sympathy for Juliet than he has for Romeo. Yeah. I feel like she's given, I mean, maybe it's just because she's the girl, but she's given more vulnerability, more, it's just. The, the play regards her more kindly. She's more level-headed at right. the beginning too. Right? She doesn't have a cadre of buffoonish friends that yeah. are like peeking under the skirts of the the nurse lady yeah. and being weirdos. Romeo has the problematic early relationship with Rosalind that you have to deal with. Like, did he just, is Romeo, is Juliet really just another in his, he's just in love with love. You know, he's a classic teenage boy, narcissist, emo kind of, Romeo has all that, and Juliet's just like swept off her feet in a dumb way. Yeah, but, but he has to slowly break away at her, right? Mm-hmm. He's the one that, as soon as he sees her, forgets the other girl. Yeah, yeah. And so she actually has more. He's gone to the whole party just yeah. to see Rosalind, just to see her. Yeah, yeah. And instead, and then, he sees oh, her. Oh, there's Juliet, and now, yeah. like, forget about her. We've just traded obsessions. But to be fair, I mean, they he comes up and talks to her and they go into that weird thing about worship and like this yeah. whole religious metaphor. And Juliet's not playing too hard to get there. No. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's not. But I do think there's she doesn't just throw herself in the same way. Right. She has to be wooed. Right. And like for two seconds. Yeah, she has for to two be seconds. Yeah. I, I take your point. I'm yeah, not yeah, arguing yeah, with yeah. it. I'm just saying. <laughs> but yeah. Well, and then she sort of says when he when he surprises her on the balcony, she's like, "Oh crap! You heard me say how much I like you." So, yeah. oh darn! I guess we just have to move to the stage where we're in love and skip all the the part where I play hard to get because you discovered my secret. Yeah, yeah. Oh it's, crap! There's some pretty telling stuff in that scene. Yeah, the balcony scene is pretty good. Pretty. Yeah, good. I, I like that scene. Let's see, Capulet's Orchard. She speaks. Let's see. Yeah, I mean, let me see if I can find what I'm thinking of. It is too rash, too unadvised, too sudden, too like the lightning, which doth cease to be ere one can say it light and sweet good night. This bud of love by summer's ripening breath may prove a beauteous flower when next we meet. And then Romeo, oh, will thou leave me so unsatisfied? <laughs> and then she says, what satisfaction can thou have tonight? Yeah. And so she's trying to, she knows that he's pushing things too fast. Mm-hmm. And yet he's... Just going to keep pushing. Also, though, if I was She's like... encouraging it. Yeah. She is, if if some chick said coy. to me, like, what satisfaction can you have tonight, exactly, bud? Yeah. Uh, that's an invitation. Yeah. yeah that's, like, well, that's, uh, she's playing the game. Yeah, well, yeah. let me count the... Yeah, she's playing the game. Well, and they both have this elaborate quasi-religious metaphor that they keep coming back to. Yeah. He is her idol, or she's her idol, or if she's a god, then she should kiss him and all this. Well, a lot of the language that he uses is the same thing you see in Shakespeare's sonnets, mm-hmm. which is really interesting like the sort of worship of the beloved and this idolization of the beloved. So the stage adaptation that I watched played Romeo as a poet. So often yeah. when he would, you know, spout the lines that are most poetic or like 
he would he would kind of like pull out his oh like had a little, little notebook little or notebook and would yeah he'd be reading them delivering yeah. them huh. that's interesting Lewis, when he's like soliloquizing about yeah. love or whatever he's like reading or like talking to Benvolio or whoever yeah. usually I feel like he's played as he's just so in love with love you know he's he's Ewan McGregor and Moulin Rouge he's just like yeah I wanted to be in love but the problem was I'd never been in love that yeah that and so and I think Shakespeare's probably doing some wink and nod at like a criticism of poetry there mm-hmm. so good for him yeah interesting so how sincere is Shakespeare in terms of wanting I mean are we supposed to be swept up into this romance I guess that's the I think if, it, if the, he didn't have characters like Friar Lawrence in there, then yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that he's there and given some of Romeo's friends and just what he gets wrapped up in, mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, we're supposed to second, we're supposed to look at this with a little bit of distance. I can't stand Romeo's friend. I guess this actually brings us into the no, crawl, yeah. the crawl way of secondary characters. Ooh, my favorite spot. Yeah, Brandon's favorite spot. I hope we don't get stuck here. <laughs> I, I I really check out when Mercutio goes on one of his long. Oh, Mercutio Merc- bothers me. Yeah. He's like, "Shut up, dude! Yeah. Nobody cares about your stupid little big thing about the the, the goddess that's asleep or what? What yeah. is it? What is it even? I, I don't even something remember. like that. It's yeah, just like <laughs> this big long thing about dreams or something like. Yeah, and, yeah, that part's terrible. <laughs> yeah, you, you heard it. <laughs> folks it really is like and they try to like i watched a couple different stage adaptations of that in particular because you want the the one that i watched that actor is like really hamming it up and it's like he's trying to sell material that is just like well and you just it's like we said earlier it must have worked it must have the audience must have thought it was funny or but it's i just do not know how to allow for that how to translate it into now like what i guess it's funny is barcuccio a funny character he's supposed to be funny i think he's i mean everything i saw was trying to lean into the comedy yeah like i think he's supposed to it's like if you're watching a college movie he's like that frat bro friend yeah yeah who has a little bit of wit to him as well the version i saw they made him a girl actually she was this kind of trans girl kind of butch haircut just he'd be played by that who you ever seen the movie Crash? The yeah, the 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 one that everybody hates. The, the one that Academy Award winning yeah. one. Not the one. The guy about, who plays yeah. the cop who's really mean, but then becomes good at the end. Yeah, that yeah. actor. That guy. He'd be yeah. played by that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind um, of the guy you love to hate. Mm-hmm. And I never have liked those kind of characters. So we're saying Stifler. 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 Kind of. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, and I and I've never really enjoyed those. <laughs> you never really <laughs> kind of movies. We've all, We've all watched American Pie. Yeah. <laughs> it's a reference from a certain time in our lives that people our age get. So, yeah. Sorry. I get it. No, no need to apologize. I get it. I actually I get it, yeah. don't know that I have watched an American Pie movie. I think I watched one of them on TV when I was that Saw them in the theaters. Yeah. Well, nice. I, I can't say that I didn't see things in the theaters too. Mm-hmm. Uh, good movies no, in my case. No, I saw. Uh, anyway. We don't, we're not here to litigate American pie. It's something bad. about Mary. Something about your first slice. We're not here to litigate American pie. pie. Yeah, no. Coconut not, pie is pretty good, though. I'm a... It's not this pie. No. Yeah. Bye-bye, <laughs> Miss American Pie. Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Merc- Mercutio sucks. I guess he's supposed to be funny. Yeah, he's supposed to be. He's not one of Shakespeare's more successful <laughs> characters. <laughs> He must have been at the time. He must have been. Uh, Doesn't translate probably... across the ages as well as other characters. Well, we'll he also just much. makes you hate Romeo like 
why are you hanging out yeah, with these and, dudes, and bro? The, the, and that's and, uh, this is really just is this is a fun play to teach to high schoolers because right. you do get to point out that look, it's like stuff I talk about with my children. Your friends, they matter. Like mm-hmm. the kind of friends you have, people make assumptions about your character based on the people you hang out with. Right. Right. And Romeo might want to be this wonderful hero because Father Lawrence obviously sees something in Romeo, right? Yeah, it seems like he he's takes more of an above. interest in Romeo than he does in these other guys. Mm-hmm. Right. And Friar Lawrence seems to be, I keep calling him either father or friar, but who cares? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he seems to, yeah, there's something about Romeo that Friar Lawrence wants to help direct. Right. Right. Which is why I made the Star Wars analogy earlier, right? But he hangs out with, instead of choosing Lawrence, he chooses oh, Darth Sidious over there, mm-hmm. Mercutio, and everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. Although he does hide in a tree when all his posse is looking for him. Yeah, that's true. It's, mm-hmm. so. it's real funny. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> hey, bro, where you at, hey, bro? Where you at, Romeo? Uh, More like Bromeo, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't like Bromeo. I don't like his his Bromeo posse. Yeah. I don't, I especially don't like the scene where they're like, let's behave rather badly to this nurse late. I mean, the nurse is annoying. She's another annoying character, but you at least understand where she's coming from and who she, and whether you think she's funny or not, you can see why they thought she was funny. Like you can do the math. Like she keeps interrupting and wants to tell her own stories about. It's fun to make fun of the lower classes. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Because you get all those Stupid weird loud mouths yeah. that won't yeah, stop you, talking. Yeah, you get those scenes like before you the idiots parties. in the audience who won't stop talking yeah. while we're making fun of you right now right. with this joke. Yeah. It's like the scenes before the parties where you have all the staff talking yeah. and, and their low British accents right. and all this. Yeah. You're, you're, you're Downton Abbey kind of, yeah. so. what are they doing in the kitchen kind of thing. It adds a little bit of levity to the tale. It does add a little bit of levity to the tale. You like that, Nathan? <laughs> oh, man. I'm going. I'm the third will here. I'm out. Royalty, thy name is Brown. <laughs> That's a little levity to the tale. <laughs> um, where are we? Any other secondary characters we want to talk about while we're here in the crawl way? Let's talk about old Tybalt. Old Tybalt. <laughs> he has a fun name. Uh, yeah. Is, I always forget which one he is. Is he... Juliet's brother or cousin. Or cousin. He's like, he's for her team and he yeah. dies. Does Romeo kill Tybalt? He does. Yeah. And he's por- the one that causes everything to start spinning out of control. Right. Because they were close growing up and he kills him. And, bro, you know, you're, well, are they going to survive mm-hmm. this? Old Tybalt sure didn't. No, no, he didn't. No, very few people did. I like that. Prince, he comes in. He's like, you guys need to stop fighting or I'll kill you all. <laughs> He's a pretty, he's a pretty oh, great yeah, character. That, that is fun. And he gets the last word, too. Yeah, Shakespeare always gives the last word to those guys. And I'm like, why? <laughs> because they existed in the audience. Yes, well, yeah, I understand. We all are part of the great chain of being, and that's what we believe, and the king is the dude. And the, and the prince, king needs to come and give his stamp of... But it's like, can't the king be a character instead of just having this Lord Buckington show up at the end to say, and here is the moral of the story. It's not my favorite. No more tale of woe than the (laughs) of all Romeo. That of Juliet Juliet and all. And her Romeo. Romeo, yes. We'll get it. (laughs) Well, speaking of Romeo and Juliet, that's what we will continue to do as we go into twists and turns. Yeah, that's a twist and turn. I mean, it's a fun scene. This it's all hot outside, right? And it's really playing up on he. 
this idea of how the weather affects our emotions. Mm -hmm. I don't think that scene would work quite as well if it was like in the middle of winter. Everybody's outside and they're mad that it's hot. Mm -hmm. And so Tybalt comes up and Romeo kills him. (laughs) We've all been there. Because it's hot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, Tybalt killed... Mercutio? Yeah. I, I, I get them confused. And so, and that might be the scene where that happens. But yeah, and it's a good analogy for the heat within us and not being able to control our passions. And so that idea is all over this play, right? <laughs> yeah. Burning lust yeah. and burning anger. And mm. Is it? Maybe. Is it? Oh. Yeah, I never made that connection before. Like, and Did you know they add some of the secondary characters to provide some levity to the tale? <laughs> I'm glad it provided levity. The, no, I'm going to shut the up tail, now, guys. The tail really the tail. needs some levity. Yeah. <laughs> some levity to the tail. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon still needs some levity. Mm, it's right. a little heavy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. That was funny. Eeyore needed a tail. He did. He did. His tail didn't have much level. He didn't levity. But if they Eeyore. put a giant balloon on his tail, then they would have had some levity. Yeah. I'm not convinced they didn't. So twists and turns. This play is full of them. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we ran Brandon out. Uh, this is the most compressed story, I think, since Star Wars, A New Hope. I think you know, in, in, in terms of like, I met Obi-Wan. He's my best friend and father figure. Oh, he's dead. I'm really sad. Oh, I, I got one. I got one. Yeah, it's, it's the a, most compressed story since Star Wars. Yeah, <laughs> this is the, Shakespeare downstream of Star Wars. It's going to go in the back of the next edition of Romeo and Juliet. The, the most compressed Press story since, since Star Wars. That, Nathan Albertson. That'll be on the, the front cover. Yeah. <laughs> wow, the most compressed story since Star Wars. <laughs> Sign me up. Yeah, I don't know. It's just everything happens really fast. It does. <laughs> they fall in love. It, and ha- it happens fast, and yet it's fun to watch him put the pieces together. Yeah. Right? Because it does all add, it does all come to a head at that fifth act really well, mm-hmm. where you see all the various chains. It's so that's another thing that's great about this play to show students is how a good storyteller will have all these little chains in their tail, and they'll all come to a head right at the end together at the same time, right? And so, yeah, no, students will inevitably draw like comparisons to Marvel, how you have all those various storylines, but they all have to end up at the battle with the. Thanos at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's kind of what's going on here. Yeah, a better populist comparison would be Harry Potter because she's good at all yeah, those, those But all those and, things have to come to a head at Hogwarts there at the end. Yeah. They yeah. all have to they all have to somehow appear on the same stage at the very end. Yeah. And Mrs. Weasley's gonna it, kill what's her face. Yeah, and he does it pretty well and he provides believable delays in front of characters who need to get there in time so that, that it all can kind of fall apart mm-hmm. in the right satisfying way. I mean, I would say if I dared criticize that I prefer plot hurdles that come out of character to plot hurdles that come out of circumstance. Like it's better if there's a a people reason that Romeo can't make it back or that the letter doesn't get delivered as opposed to I was sick or the ship got delayed. But on the other hand, it has that nice kind of old school tragedy. Like everything would have worked if stupid postman didn't screw everything up. So maybe I like it. I don't know. Maybe I like it. Maybe you like it. Put that on the front of... <laughs> that can go on the front. Maybe I like it. Yeah. Nathan Albers in the <laughs> yeah. booking. Yeah, the most compressed thing since the original Star Wars. Some characters provide some levity to the tale. <laughs> Brandon Chastain. 
<laughs> and Jake's only said smart things. So so that's good. Guys. Well, at least my dumb things were dumb enough to be forgotten <laughs> or simply to have it risen to the level of stupidity that yours. <laughs> right. <laughs> we rise below stupidity here on the bookening. And speaking of below stupidity or above stupidity, we're going into the salon of style, guys. <laughs> Where we while away the hour discussing the power of prose. Yeah, I think this is where we've gone off the uh, rails. Did you write in that the yourself? Yeah, I did. We while away the hour discussing the, the power, power of, of prose. prose. That's amazing. I love that, Nathan. Mm. Prose by any other name? Um, sorry, <laughs> prose by just, any other just name. Look up for the crickets here. Oh. You can while away the hours consulting with the flowers. Mm-hmm. You only had a brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that actually a lyric? No. Oh, okay. Something like that, though. Nice. I didn't know what that... I don't think he consults with flowers, though. I would while away the hours consulting with the flowers. If only had a brain. Life would be so merry. I would be a bowl of cherry if I only had a brain. All right. Salon of style. Yeah. That Shakespeare's pretty good with words, huh? He is. He's got a nice style, that he guy. He does. <laughs> In the past, I think we've tried to really talk about style more than we can with Shakespeare. He's, it's one of those things that, yeah, it's, it's Shakespeare. It's ineffable. It's, it's style. Go read him and figure out what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he whiles away the hours conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. Consulting with the rain. Okay. <laughs> do, 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 do. Well, it's just the eternal question of why, when you put these words together in this order, do they mean so much and you change the order just a little bit or what is it old? Uh, a rose Sam- wouldn't be as sweet if it had any other name. Exactly. Exactly. Juliet's wrong. What it, Samuel Clemens said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. It's true. Lightning bugs are pretty great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're hoping, we're aiming for lightning bug, obviously. Sometimes we just get lightning. Sometimes we just get boring lightning. Old lightning. <sighs> Never strikes twice. Nope. Sometimes it strikes twice. The Shakespeare strikes back. <laughs> the Bride of Shakespeare? Yeah. Shakespeare and Robin? Shakespeare and Robin. Yep. <laughs> Shakespeare and Robin walking through the forest. day. How many steps of stream of consciousness was that? <laughs> I count at least seven. <laughs> at least seven. Yeah. Well, it's the step I'd of consciousness. Die of for you. <laughs> that was only one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Shakespeare has a, a good style. I like it. Hey, he built the Globe Theater, and they all came. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that gets us back to Star Wars. Kevin Costner with Darth Vader. Yeah. Don't waste your love on somebody who doesn't value it. What? Goodreads has that as the fourth most popular quote from Romeo and Juliet. Wait, that's not a quote from Romeo. <laughs> it's like a... <laughs> Number one is, these violent delights have violent ends, and in their triumph die like fire and powder, which is they kiss, consume. Which I think it's pretty great. And then, my bounty is as boundless as the sea. My love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite. And then the third, actually, is, don't waste your love on somebody who doesn't value it. I can't be in the play. I sense a little no, no fear Shakespeare, perhaps. Or yeah. uh, don't waste your love on someone who doesn't value it. Parting is such sweet. Uh, sorry, such sweet. Sorry, sorry. Oh boy, did, did my heart Nathan? love till now? Forswear it. Sight. What's that? Said Educate Nathan. Edu- Still hey, learning how to read. 
Let me see. Let me see how many of these quotes you guys can finish. Oh. For never was a story of more woe than this of our Juliet and her Romeo. Not our. You got it wrong. And no. Juliet and her Romeo. Do not swear by the moon for she's false, false. and wrong. <laughs> she's false and wrong. No, she changes constantly. <laughs> Do you bite your tongue at me, sir? Uh, thumb. I'm sorry. Did I say tongue? <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah. <laughs> <Do> you, <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. you must be in a lot of pain. Man. What's in a name? That which we call a rose. By any other name. So far, so good? Would, would be just as sweet. Nope. Would be as sweet. Nope. Would not be as sweet. Nope. Would be lovely. Nope. What do we do with sweet things? Smell. Smell. So it would, would smell, smell as sweet. sweet. We eat them. <laughs> <laughs> if I profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine, the gentle fine is this. My lips to blushing pilgrims ready stand. To smooth that rough touch with <laughs> thy lips, mm. your nutty no. lips, a tender kiss, a tender kiss. Oh, okay, well, it's going real well. Keep going. <laughs> Have not saints lips and holy palmers too? I pilgrims' lips that they must use in prayer. <laughs> <laughs> These freaks. <laughs> sin from thy lips, O trespass, sweetly urged. Give me my sin again. <laughs> this isn't how you guys wooed your wives. <laughs> Parting is such sweet sorrow. Hey, you guys got that Woo-hoo. one. But Real soft, what? Light from yonder window breaks. Tis the east. Nope. And... But soft, what? Light through yonder window breaks. What did I say? Through, yeah. From? From or is or, yeah. What light through yonder window is... breaks. Tis the east and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and forsake the morning star. And if thou wilt not be but sworn, my love. I defy you, stars. Mm-hmm. Women may fail when there's no strength in men. Nice. Oh, I am Fortune's... What? I am Fortune's fool. Oh. All right, Romeo and Juliet, they were good at style. Hey, Shakespeare was good at style. Yeah, well, they were too, I think. We are being ushered, though, into the haven of reflection upon deeper meaning. Didn't we already get this with the I I think we probably did. It tends to be that by the time we arrive at the haven... We've already found deeper meaning. And we're ready to just go off into the gray havens. Maybe maybe that's that's the real lesson is if by the time you reach the heaven, the haven, you already have what you know. And places between us. Never let me go. Yeah, never let me go. Oh, man. What a sad book. It took you too long to, get, to find it. Yeah, I know. Just, I just, you missed the punchline. Never let me go. <laughs> I'll never let you go. Frailty, thy name Turn is Brandon. I think frailty, thy name is Brandon, saves about brother. everyone. Uh, yeah. uh, it's a good I board. didn't yeah, promise to your mother. <laughs> the deeper meaning of this play is. What is the deeper meaning of Romeo and Juliet? Don't give your love to someone who won't give it back. (laughs) Value it. (laughs) Value it. I think we figured it out. Value my love, Nathan. Value it. Value my love, Nathan. (laughs) Value it. Okay. <laughs> I think we have no deeper meaning for this book. <laughs> uh, uh, anything else you guys want to talk about about Romeo and Juliet? <coughs> Excuse me, before we call out our patrons. 
No, let's call them out. <laughs> okay, you <laughs> patrons, it. <laughs> it's time. How dare you? How, how dare you? Listen. I bite my thumb at you, sir. Yeah. I bite my thumb. I Brandon bites his bite tongue. My yeah. tongue at all of you. <laughs> yeah. All right. I bite my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> What's that a reference I don't know. to? I, don't know. <laughs> I bite my Ho- tongue. Hocus pocus. <laughs> hocus pocus. Where'd you get that hocus? All right, guys, let's shout out our patrons. How do you become a patron of the Booking Jake? Why don't you say this in uh... the small robot voice? You go to patreon.com forward slash the booking and wow, this is amazing. Thebooking.com, patreon.com, patreon.com forward slash the booking and we can give you a deep voice. And uh, for your gift in any amount. You can be a patron, uh, $10 a month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's enough of that. You go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. You become a patron for any amount. Yeah. Any amount. Any amount. $10 any amount. gets you a shout out. $5 gets you behind the scenes access. $1 gets you nothing. $1 gets you nothing, but it helps us. $25 a month gets you our annual t-shirt. $50 a month gets you in the book club, and it is the coolest reward level because you get the donor shout out, all the behind the scenes content, the annual t-shirt, and you get a personalized copy of every book that we read here on the Bookening yep. months in advance of our discussion of it so that you have plenty of time to read along with us. And we put all kinds of amazing, amazing, clever, clever, insightful, (laughs) and hilarious Mm -hmm. things. Clever. They're very clever. They're hilarious. In the books. Mm -hmm. We we sign them. It's one of our more popular tiers. Why would you want a book signed by? The author. Yeah. When it would be signed by us. Especially since most of them are dead. Mm -hmm. That'd be creepy. It'd be really weird. You'd have to like get a Ouija board. A weird necromancy. You don't want a Ouija board signing your copy of Romeo and Juliet. You don't. (laughs) You want a human. Yeah. (laughs) Preferably non-demonic humans. I thought you were going to say non-denominational. Because you should go to that Doctor Who store and try to take their TARDIS and see the author. You could. You could. You could. You could. I, I recommend it against it. But I recommend for our patrons who we should shout out. Shout them out. Why don't you guys say mm-hmm. which Shakespeare character these patrons resemble? Okay. Uh, Brandon, who do you think Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds resemble? Romeo and Juliet. Of course. Uh, Jake, who do you think the artful Anthony Dodger and Bootstrap Betsy, his lovely wife, and I think their child now, resemble? Mm-hmm. Frankenstein. Yeah, that's true. A little Anthony cigar store. Probably Dracula. Yeah, that's my favorite <laughs> Shakespeare character for sure. Uh, the Immortal Chelsea E. Frankenstein. Jim Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Dracula. Lily of the Valley. Frankenstein. Andrew Nestor, the Lovebirds. Dracula. Keith Master. Frankenstein. I, I, folks, I'm going to throw a vocal effect on it just to <laughs> make it interesting at least. Uh, <laughs> we'll do pitch. Well, no, we'll do Monster. Of course, we should do Monster. John and Joe, Little Baby Max. Environments. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also see us loose and deal with you when have faces. Frankenstein. Fair Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Trump's Brian Adam. Frankenstein. Leave it on me. Dracula. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith the Ladies of Justice. Frankenstein. DJ Sammy G. Dracula. Bring it again, the Tiberius. Frankenstein. Eric and Catherine from Yonder. Dracula. Dracula. Professor Radiant. Frankenstein. Laugh and go scream. Dracula. Dracula. Laugh and go scream.